You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Sandy, Texas. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. So, yep, uh, hello to uh, little town of Sandy in the big state of Texas. We're going to jump right back into uh, the making of a murderer uh, discussion that we uh, started last week. Um, so, uh, Glenn, uh, I think you wanted to start us off here this episode. Yeah, uh, you you ended the last episode talking about decisions that they made to get involved um, when especially this county that clearly had conflict of interest uh, because of you know the the lawsuit that Stephen Avery had against them. Right, and even they said um, even said that in the news to the reporters like that week when they were starting the investigation. Right. They they made their own awareness that we're aware of this, so we feel it's best that we don't get involved. And then the first thing they do is get involved. They're at the scene and around key pieces of evidence and finding key pieces of evidence. Right. Uh, this is not good. <laughs> and, you know, I back again when I was uh, on the crime scene team, you know, I I was occasionally called in to assist local counties um, who were attempting to sometimes process the scene. They would get to a certain point and they go, Ooh, uh, you know, we don't, we're not really sure if we should be doing this. <laughs> um, this to me, this is a very small county in, um, in uh, Wisconsin. And um, I just, I can't imagine, and, and even they show in the video their little crime scene van, I simply can't imagine that they were equipped and trained enough and had enough experience with homicides to handle this kind, this level of homicide investigation. That, to me, was the very first surprising thing, that they didn't call the state in right from the get-go, that this should have been something where the state would have been called in to have done the scene, the state would have taken control of that, and then they would have been fine. They would have been out of it. They they wouldn't have had to have done anything. In fact, they likely would not have been support, even for the neighboring county, because the state wouldn't have needed the support. The state could have handled this kind of scene. It was very, very shocking to me that first they attempted to get involved at all, and secondly, instead of enlisting the state, they enlist the next door town county the next you know the the neighboring county right. which is no bigger than them right. and i just don't know that has the resources it's not like they're they have a forensic anthropologist on board that they could have consulted with because as you pointed out in the last episode not having the forensic anthropologist there is huge because one of the things that you want, of course, is the forensic anthropologist on scene to do it more like an archaeological dig because if they can show articulation, if they can show that bones were articulated at some point in the dig, well, then they can show that it was pieces and that she was burned right there as opposed to having been moved. Right. And I thought and I thought defense did a great job of bringing in Scott Fairgreave. He's a forensic anthropologist from Canada. He's up uh, north of Toronto. I, I know him. He's a good guy. I thought he gave really good evidence and very balanced evidence because I thought that the local examiner did tend to make some opinions about Right. About things that, um, right. This is where little, this is where the bones iffy. were burned because most of the bones are here. I'm like, eh. Right, right, uh, right. As opposed to uh, Dr. Fairgreave's testimony that talked about 
No, um, he has seen bodies been moved. They could have been burned elsewhere without having essentially exactly as I was suggesting the articulation and without having someone have done an archaeological appropriate dig. Right. There's no way to know if how the bones got moved, if it was either from the investigators or from someone moving them from another site. I have, I, I, I have to admit that it is really, really strange that bones are found in different places on the property, although they're still found on his property well, in there different was places. one other place that was in a barrel where there were a couple found, and then the other site I actually thought was off the property because uh, it was quite a ways away. Um, it yeah, it's like over in a ravine area, but it's still right. considered part of the property. Okay. But that that's where it be that's where the 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 other theory starts to creep in is that it wasn't him; it was one of his brothers. One of his brothers actually or was involved. Or somebody, yes, one of the other family. No, no, members. Stephen Avery's brothers. No, it's okay. They're actually they're they're saying it's one of Stephen Avery's brothers because actually both of his brothers have. Um, criminal sexual conduct charges and some things, including one that uh, had pled no contest uh, uh, to essentially um, some criminal sexual conduct charges. Right. And um, so they're thinking that one of the brothers had done this, panicked, and then started moving the you know the the bones over to you know closer to Stevens property. Although if it's all on Stevens property. Does it really matter if it's found close to right. the house or, uh, you know, a quarter of a mile away uh, down a row in a pit if it's still on his property? Does it really does it really matter? I mean, if, um, it's, if it's another family member trying to, you know, frame up or, or point the blame towards Stephen because, the, you know, the cops already have it in for him, yeah, it's still kind of risky to do it also where you are also yeah. have access to and live you know if if things start getting investigating towards towards you you kind of want them you know further but well, well all right so last episode you were giving a list of of things and we had gone over the bones the key um and then um we were going to talk about the car a little bit and you talked about some of the blood as well right um and anything else about the car that you found interesting well, the, um, I mean, the, the 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 car being on the property, how they located the car. Did you have any issues eh, with that? Not really. I mean, they, they tried to make the thing uh, in the documentary about how these two people were sent out to look to look, you know, to check out the property, and you know they kind of walk in and they walk like right to it, and it, and in a forty acre lot with hundreds and hundreds of cars, they find it within like ten minutes. And they're given a camera by the search leader organizer, and no other group was given a camera. So this is all like a big, you know, conspiracy. You know, mixing it even broader uh, to find this car, and somebody had moved it there because uh, it was kind of the edge of the property. Um, right. You know, maybe it may be easier to to place it there than if it was you know in the middle uh, of the junkyard. And right. no, I. I, I I did. I was kind of like, Meh. I mean, it didn't really strike me as as all that odd. I mean, they. I think it would have been harder to find if it was in the middle somewhere. Um, but uh, some of the other things are that you know, there's a car crusher on on the property that was mm-hmm. functional, and Stephen Avery and lots of other people on the property knew how to use it. So why not just stick it in the in the car crusher and start uh, dismantling the thing? 
Why have it so out in the open and so poorly hidden by just a couple of sticks and uh, and two by fours and stuff? You know, I have a theory about that. Actually, I you know it comes back to the key again. If the key, assuming the key went down as the key went down, they found it there, it maybe fallen in the bookcase or something, or fallen you know in a slipper and. I actually, if, if that's the case, I wonder if Stephen Avery didn't lose the key himself. You know, rushing around, going all over the property. You know, maybe he's thinking, oh shit, maybe I burned it in, you know, in her purse with her other stuff. Maybe it was in her pocket, and I, you know, or and I forgot to get it, or I lost it somewhere on the property. You know, transporting her around. Um, so I, I wondered for a while if that was why they never did dispose of it because he actually lost the key until the uh, investigators found, found it. it fallen behind the bookcase or you know where they think it had fallen down behind the book. That would make complete sense to me um, why they he wasn't able to do anything with it at that point because you have to be able to drive it. You can't tow it up on onto the crusher. You have to be able, you have to drive it up onto the crusher. And, uh, and and my my kind of theory on on the whole car thing is it looked hidden by a kid you know just the the way that they that these random like two by fours and sticks were just leaned up against it um it, it looked like you know someone like brendan dassey or uh brendan's brother who was around that day it wasn't really discussed a lot in the documentary uh, if they, they had been involved, how they would have hidden this car. Um, yeah, and, and along with those lines, too, I believe the license plates were taken off the vehicle. You know, that, to me, if if you're trying to plant the car on the property, you would have left the license plates on there. You wouldn't have taken them off. Right. You know, that, that that's another thing that stands out. I agree. It seems like a, a crap job at hiding it, but it still seems like an effort to have hidden it. It, it felt genuine enough to me. I didn't have any problem with the woman. And, you know, I actually thought it was a... I, I think this was a miscalculation on defense's part to dismiss this, especially, um, you know, the Midwest and, and, and viewpoints. Uh, the woman saying that, no, I, I think God led me to it right away. Um, out of all these vehicles, I think I was led to right. it. You know, I hear that all the time at crime scenes. That is not, that is nothing new to me. Uh, the victim led me here. Um, the victim was showing us the way. Uh, God was showing us the way. I you know I hear that all the time when something rather. Hmm, unlikely happens at a scene I, i've had these cases where um uh, there's only one piece of evidence or very small this or very small that that should not have existed and yet there it is and we found it in the least likely of circumstances i've heard many an investigator um or person or family member or someone invoke that kind right. of statement i mean and it stands out and so it, you you people remember it because it's so unlikely and it happened so i mean you may have found likely pieces of evidence or searched and never found any evidence and you don't remember those but the, <laughs> you remember the right. ones that like that but also makes sense i mean if if she just so so much just happened to start in that one corner and she's you would most likely just start walking across the edge which is what she did looking at the cars uh, as you cross the the edge of the other property and then turn around and start coming back and th there it was it was just you know kind of on it was on the edge of the, of the junkyard area 
it just so happened that if you do a search kind of back and forth and you start in that corner, it's not going to take you a long, very long to find it. Yeah. All right. So the, the next thing again with the car is, is Teresa Halbach's blood found in the back, uh, in the kind of, I don't know, trunk or cargo area of the trunk of the car. And, uh, specifically that, um, the, the expert testified that it looked like, um, blood from, from hair. So like her hair was covered yeah. in blood, uh, and then Contact, contacted yeah. there. And then the, the, the blood, the blood had the specific pattern because it was transferred on from hair kind of tapering off to a point. Yeah. And, and this is one of the things that, that why I really think that the whole prosecutor's theory on exactly what happened is completely wrong because, uh, in their scenario, there is there is no putting her in the car. There, there's no reason to it. it. You know, she's in uh-huh. she's in the house, and then she's in the garage, and then she's in the fire pit, okay. and those are all like right there. So okay, um, all right. So that I'm glad you bring that up. Okay, so it must not be in the documentary. So one of the more compelling things that I would urge listeners to do is go on YouTube and watch the three and a half hours of Brendan Dassey's interview, which I I sat and watched all of his interview. And although, as they point out in the documentary many times, the police officers, the investigators, are the first to suggest key elements of evidence. You know, they're the ones to bring up the gun. They're the ones to bring up a shooting. They bring up all these kinds of things. Um, And then the story changes. And, And I have to admit, you do feel sad for the kid that you know he doesn't understand his situation he doesn't understand that he is incriminating himself he didn't understand his rights and that's one of the things i really appreciated about this this video and some others we'll talk about at the end um is that it really does point out flaws of the american criminal justice system that he has a right you know fifth amendment right to not incriminate himself and to um you know and he is doing that horribly and terribly and does not understand at all he still thinks he's going to see wrestlemania he still thinks he's going to get the fifth period to work on his project he's like so i get to go home now right it's sad it's 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 sad um but at the same time the cops are doing what they need to do for justice for the victim and i don't have you know it's it's this weird back and forth i have to have to accept if that was my sister if that was my relative if that was my daughter I wouldn't give a sh- I just wouldn't care. Right. I, I just, you know. <laughs> or um, on the other side, if that was your son um, you know, yeah, being interviewed. Right. Yeah, I, I would, yeah, I would be very concerned. Right. And, okay, so it's one of the few things that he offers, that Brendan Dassey offers, that is never suggested by the police officers. What he says is after, um, after we shot her, or after she was shot, um, we put her body, I helped Steve put her body in the back of the vehicle because it was in the garage. They had moved the vehicle into the garage at that point, and that all comes out in the interview. And Stephen had asked to help you know, put the body in the back because he was going to dump it in a pond. So they put it in there, and after they get the body in there, he then changes his mind and says, no, no, you know what, we should just burn the body and get rid of it. So that to me is pretty compelling that it's the, the, the nephew that brings it up. Right. And there's physical evidence that agrees with that. And it's a really nonsensical thing. Why would that even be there? Right. Why would her blood, you know? But it all makes sense when it's talked about by the nephew. 
which none of his interview stuff about what happened in the bedroom, the rape and um, kidnapping of her and all that, none of that makes sense. His story changes over and yep. over and over, and it's it's just it's so inconsistent and unreliable. I don't know if it happened or not. I, I really don't know, and there's no physical evidence to support it. But everything that he talks about with bringing her to the garage, that's where she shot that makes sense because that's where the bullet is found. Right. They cleaned up. They talk about that and the cleaning up of it. And then they put her body in the back of the vehicle. And that fits with the physical evidence. So all of that fits with the physical evidence. Nothing about the bedroom may, makes any sense and fits with any physical evidence that they found. Right. So uh, another um, uh, key part of the, of the you know, physical evidence, the kind of the testing part of this uh, comes up. Uh, towards the end, uh, they talk about this test that the FBI performed on uh, the blood. <laughs> uh, yeah, on, I loved it. Yeah. On the blood uh, found in the vehicle, Steve, on the blood that's identified to Stephen Avery, as to whether it contained EDTA. Because if it, um, if EDTA was found, then obviously it had to have come from this purple top uh, blood tube, uh, because you don't find EDTA in. Um, you know, in your blood when it's in your when it's in you, uh, this is a preservative uh, to keep the blood from coagulating and and you know forming clots and stuff uh, inside the blood tube. And the DNA had uh, well, first the defense is looking to do this test, and they find out that nobody does this test. But uh, the prosecution now looks to do the test, and the FBI, who hadn't done it in ten years, uh, speeds through um, some validations. And right, they had to unarchive their their procedure. Right, uh, and they go through and they do this test, and the test comes up as negative. Right. And well, because of how the documentary is set up, and so many other examples of of the documentarian's bias in this case, I I I, I want to believe that the uh, the FBI examiner, the chemist that came to testify, was made to look really bad, but. The parts of his testimony shown in the video make him look really bad. Yeah, that uh, he's. I I I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know how much be, because I mean the the key points were both there that he says it's negative so it's not there and then the defense witness you know says yeah you didn't tell us what your limit of detection was it could have been there but below your limit right. of detection you could have just not detected it or. Uh, I mean, I don't know what other um, you know properties EDTA has. Whether it could evaporate out of the sample or degrade over time. No. Um, no. no. Okay. Uh, be- because the EDTA is this complex that will um, a- attempt to bind to calcium in the blood. It's it's the binding to the calcium that prevents it from coagulating. In large amounts, it may actually bind to some of the iron in the blood, but the binding site is to the calcium. But it's this. Um, a very large molecular complex that will stay there indefinitely in in there. The, it's just it's not in large therapeutic amounts in the in the those tubes. It's there enough to just keep the blood from from coagulating. Right. But it's not like there's a, it's not like it's just coated with tons and tons of it. So I agreed with the defense witness that it could have been present depending what the limit of detection was. All we ever know was how good was that test. 
we would have to know how the FBI validated that test. Did they take samples from the Stephen Avery blood tube and show, no, right. look, every time we took a sample of one you know, microliter, two microliters, 10 microliters, 20 microliters, we're able to detect EDT. And, and, and so when we, sa- when we sample it from the, the crime scene, we found none. Right. And even you know, sampling it right out of the tube, but also putting it on a surface and letting it dry and then sampling mm-hmm. you know, from there. Yep. Uh, trying to re- replicate the conditions of where of those samples from the crime scene being obtained, but he he goes and says, "Yeah, I tested these three samples, so there was no uh, EDTA uh, in the in the blood in the car." And yep. defense goes, "Well, what about the other three samples that you didn't test? What can you say about those?" And he says, "No, there's no EDTA in those either." Right. That's that's just nonsense. And I'm, I mean, and that again, I have I mean, to believe I, and that I, they they they. They cut and they edited it to be this misunderstanding, and then made it look really? worse. But I don't know. Okay, well, all right. <laughs> it still looked I, bad. I suspect that the an FBI supervisor will be at some point reviewing that testimony and asking for those transcripts because, yeah, you can't make a comment about three swabs you didn't test, and you certainly can't. I mean, he's he's trying to extrapolate like some kind of sample, like he did some sampling to a, and then of course through the magical phrase we, that we've talked about before yes. to a reasonable degree, degree of scientific, scientific certainty. certainty. Right. Yeah, I I'm hoping the FBI will review some of that testimony and and then and you're right, and go to the transcripts and find out what was really said. But that 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 certainly did not make them look, it did not put them in a positive right. light. And the defense witness, I don't know if... Do you know who Janine Arvizu is? Does that name no, ring a bell to you? No, uh, She was one of the witnesses in the Plaza case. Oh. Uh, so the she was one of the defense witnesses talking about validations, talking about... Um, uh, methodology and uh, you know she it's how the Habers also were kind of involved in that too because she was another type of person like the Habers who looked at uh, ACE-B methodology and whether or not one could say that's validated has the underpinnings of it established uh, follows some kind of validatable methodology etc and she's you know she's a, a chemist uh, by nature but she has been involved in many cases where the FBI has testified she's testified against them in a, in a few other cases. Right. I mean, at least she's, you know, a real scientist, unlike the, the Habers. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 sometimes she gets a little she gets a little wacky, right. eh? but I felt that at least what we saw in this was, was pretty reasonable. Right. Where um, she's like, no, you, you, well, at first, you can't, you can say yes, it's there, but you can't say no, it's not. And, uh, you know, totally kind of you know, get that concept. Um, yeah. And you know, just like in any kind of testing uh, uh, in blood, you know, you can say yes, it's here, but you can never say no, it's totally not here. You can only say it's below the detectable limit, and right. and that's what uh, all the-, the FBI examiner should have stuck to is instead of saying not here, right. just it uh, it was uh, it was not detected instead of not present. Right. Although, again, if you had his the tube samples, and you could show that in every test of X amount of volume that was more or less than the volume that was presented for testing from the vehicle, we were able to detect EDTA. And then when we look at equal or more amounts of it from the vehicle, we saw no EDTA. So you can essentially build a calibration curve from volumes from his tube of blood 
and then draw inferences that and when we saw what appears to be you know clearly more than that amount we still saw none you're still right it's below it could be below a detection limit but i think that would that would go a really long way if you could establish some kind of calibration curve from his own tube of blood. Exactly, and, and, and but I still think in the end that I would I would stick to uh, that that no EDTA was detected when you when you do a, a test for you know anything in the blood. Do do they say you know, there's there's nothing there? Oh no, they have detection they, limits. And they they just say, say negative. It was negative. Nothing was detected or nothing was found. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They just say what the detection limit is and just say negative. Right. So that's the that's the best you can do. So I was curious as to what sort of test they might have used uh, to detect the EDTA. And uh, just here in this uh, little, little internal break that you and I had a chance uh, to just rest for a minute, uh, I quick looked up online and was able to actually find, surprise, surprise, uh, the FBI's report in this case as well as some literature on the tests that they would have used. So I find it pretty interesting in the FBI's report, uh, they talk about the, the three swabs that they test. They did also have uh, the tube, Stephen Avery's blood tube as well, in which they did detect EDTA. Uh, and they talk about the three swabs they tested in which they did not detect any EDTA. And uh, they discussed the method that they used. And the method that they used was LC, liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. And it's uh, actually LCMSMS uh, using electrospray ionization. It's, it's a common instrumental technique used in the toxicology lab. And uh, the report does actually, and this I find pretty interesting because you, you're right, uh, the filmmakers you know, might have tweaked this a little bit to make it appear one way or the other, or just was never asked in court, but the report does clearly state um, essentially a, a limit of detection. And I'll just, I'll just read from it, and it says, using the procedure employed in this case, EDTA is readily identified at a concentration of 13 milligrams per liter. Uh, I, that would be about, what, 13 parts per million. Uh, additionally, EDTA is also detectable when a one microliter drop of EDTA preserved blood is analyzed. And then one microliter drop is pretty small. So um, I kind of think that answers that. And it basically says that if you've got blood from an EDTA tube of at least a microliter or more, this method should be able to detect it. And they even published, uh, they, uh, the, that, um, you know, the FBI published this procedure, and it's interesting, Bruce Padoli is a, a co-author on it, but they published in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology, uh, November, December 1997, Volume 21, and the uh, title of the article is The Analysis of EDTA in Dry Bloodstains by Electrospray, LCMS, MS, and Ion Chromatography. So there it is, it's, it's there. Um, not quite sure... Uh, what they did with that, but I think the next stop is I'll go and take a look at the transcripts. The transcripts are all available online too, and I started reading those, but I'll, I'll jump ahead to the EDTA ones. But I, uh, I I think that's pretty interesting and resolves that a little bit. So I I would tend to again side that the evidence does suggest Avery was in the vehicle actively bleeding and 
had bloodstains in the vehicle uh, or otherwise EDTA would likely have been detected in those. But going back to what you said, I mean, it's still obviously it, sh- it should be negative, uh, not detected if below a detection limit. But this detection limit's pretty good. So there it is. Uh, solves it for me. A couple other things that, uh, that just to throw out there to talk about real quick that that stood out as not being in the documentary. Mm-hmm. The uh, first of which uh, is that uh, Teresa Halbeck was you know somewhat familiar with Stephen Avery uh, yep. enough that he she'd been out multiple times to the property. She didn't like him. Uh, she specifically told her boss that that he you know creeped her out. Uh, he he came out of the trailer once just wearing a towel when she was there to uh, to take pictures, uh, and she didn't want to, to you know go back uh, to that property. Uh, right, and he had, he had hidden his number by using a, at least in the United States we got star sixty nine six seven that Sorry. before <laughs> stars. Oh, star. Yeah, right. Sorry. Um, if you put that before your your phone number, um, it essentially would you know hide the caller the caller ID number. Right. So and, he called um, her three times that day, and twice of them right. had the star six seven to hide who he was. Um, you know when when he called her, uh, and that's yes. If even if you know they hadn't found all this physical evidence on his property, uh, just that record would would definitely you know. And the last person to really see her alive, uh, that definitely mm-hmm. starts to cast a lot of suspicion. Yeah, and you know, even his defense attorney, who I loved, I mean, the Dean Strang, I, I loved him throughout, you know, this this documentary. Even he has a very unsatisfying answer when he's asked about that in some interview I saw on, I don't know, some show. Uh, he he was asked about that, and he blew it off and just said, you know, a guy wanting to hide his you know privacy or you know keep his information private doesn't make him a murderer. And I just went, nah, that's not a great answer. I mean, she's basically saying, um, uh, don't you think that's a little suspicious that you know that he had to hide his number and that there was this history, this uncomfortable history between the two, and he just sort of blew it off. And I thought, no, no, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, what else, what else you got that wasn't in the video? Um, well, you know, at the beginning, they, they mentioned the, the cat, um, that there was an incident with a cat back when he was like a teenager and, and he gets arrested or charged or something with uh, animal cruelty. And, um, and, and they kind of just blow past it in the documentary. Um, and the, the, you know, the kind of full story with that is a little more, uh, you know, disturbing. Basically, he, he doused a cat in oil and threw it into a bonfire which yeah standard hygiene it's it's just a little worse than what kind of they it's an incident with a cat that's you know there's a record of him purchasing handcuffs and shackles Mm -hmm. like the ones that they describe that uh, brendan describes them using to to restrain Teresa halbach he purchased those just a few weeks before this all happened Yep. So, you know, that may point to some planning ahead. Uh, uh, I guess he claims that they were, you know, for his the relationship of his uh, fiance at the time. Um, but she's in prison and not out for, you know, another few months. You know, again, it's not a whole lot, but it's it's another this little thing. Yep, I, I agree. Um, what, about, what about this? One of the things I remember from the investigator's presentation at the IAI was that this was a case where they were just 
starting to use, you know, because people were starting to have cell phones were much more common, you know, you know, in possession around that time. And so they were trying to, I think they were talking about in the presentation about using cell tower pings. And I remember them saying that, you know, they had essentially, you know, her cell phone was pinging off of one of the towers nearby and it never left. And that was something that was never in the video, but was important because it means that she never left their property and or right. that area. And, you know, so one of the theories was, you know, she left, she went somewhere else, she was killed somewhere else, and then the body was dumped there. Well, I remember them talking about the cell phone pinging and looking into the cell phone and the calls that they were looking at and where they were coming from and so forth. I thought that was pretty important, too. But I never saw it anywhere else other than the, invest the investigator's presentation, which, based on my track record, I'm beginning to wonder if I misremembered <laughs> that. <laughs> but I, I thought I remember them talking about the, the cell phone ping. No, I, I do remember really that. A new, a new thing. Being mentioned, just, just a little mention of it, um, in the video i believe at some point it was in an earlier episode though so um i'm not entirely confident that i'm remembering it either but i do remember something about t being able to tell when her cell phone stopped working or stopped sending a signal um mm -hmm. because way in the beginning there was lots of questions about the voicemail and who accessed her voicemails or who deleted some of her voicemails just just lots yeah, of questions I, I... with the cell phone I never really bought that. I mean, I, I thought they were trying to make the brother look like he might have had some strange involvement. And people pointed out, like in that video that, you know, she made that while she was still alive, you know, she, you know, I love my sisters and I love my family. But she never says I love my brother. And people made a big deal about that. And I, yeah. I, I didn't put anything into that. I, I just remember the investigators talking about looking at phone records. And I thought the thing that they were talking about was this was our first time you basically getting subpoenas from um, the the cellular company uh, to be able to see where her phone, what cell towers her phone was pinging off of last, and that she never left that area, and right. that would completely make sense, and that would have been new in two thousand three or uh, six. All right, so one other uh, piece of physical evidence that's not in the documentary, I think, is pretty compelling. Did you ever hear about the bleached jeans? Uh, no. What's uh? Yeah, I, I've missed that well, one in, in my reading through and stuff. When they did a search of Brendan Dassey's place, because he in the in his own interviews he talks about what clothes he might have been wearing, in in his interview, you know, at the time that they were cleaning up after you know, after she is shot, right. um, in the garage, and they find a pair of his jeans, the the kind that he talked about. Uh, they had bleach stains all over the bottom around the cuff area. So they have bleach all over them, bleach stains and spatter from bleach. And I found that to be a very compelling piece of evidence as well that at least suggests that Brendan Dassey may have been involved in the cleanup. I still right. am very skeptical about how much he might have how much he he might have been involved in the bedroom or what went down in the bedroom if anything i i just i just don't know about them I'm not saying he did I'm not saying he didn't i just i just don't have any reliable anything to go off of physical evidence or his his um interview but i did find that pretty compelling that he might have been there at the cleanup stage if he's got cuz do you have a pair of uh, bleach jeans you know, jeans with um, bleach on them. Let's see, I'm looking around my room, and no, no, <laughs> I yeah, got a couple not, of shirts that, do have, I. <laughs> that you know I've accidentally gotten a spot or two on, but uh, 
but but not spattery not bleach you know spatter. when you've been dumping bleach right. on a floor right yeah that that i thought was pretty pretty interesting and, and and any listener can find that out there pretty pretty quickly um dean strang was asked about that recently also in an interview about the bleach genes and he just again very very uh unsatisfactorily just blew that off and just went um kids do they have lots of uh clothes with bleach on them that, that's not that's not incriminating nah, it kind of is in this case right. <laughs> um it, it, it is a little bit incriminating uh, so i thought that was a good piece oh, of yeah. evidence too that was left out or, or, okay. or as, well, anyway, as they said throughout the the, the video the documentary yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I just, I was, I, I, there are just times where I just started chuckling because of the accent. Uh, yes, the, the the wonderful Midwest. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. uh, so a few things that uh, I wanted to talk about with the, uh, just the, the bias of the documentary. Um, right in the very beginning, uh, this is going back to the first case, the 85 rape that he's initially accused of and then exonerated for later. Uh, they make a big deal about this, this composite sketch. Uh, that, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That uh, that really is is you know, what the victim described, and the sketch artist comes in, sketches it out. He later says that that was the first sketch that he ever did, uh, and um, that's that starts to be the that's the basis for hey, that looks like you know this guy um, again, small county, so there's everyone, I mean, you know that there's not a whole lot of people to know, um, but that looks like uh, this guy. Uh, Stephen Avery. Let's get him in for a lineup, and then the witness, eyewitness, picks out, uh, picks him out of the lineup. And there's this whole big mm-hmm. deal made that the sketch, and they even do this crossfade of how well this sketch matches um, the previous um, mugshot photo of Stephen Avery. And, right. I, and I was kind of watching that, and I'm like, uh, I mean, I guess, but I mean, they really emphasized it doing this crossfade, right? Where one image fades right into the other one, and they're you know, the exact same size and totally like overlaying each other. So then I saw the 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 mugshot that they take after they arrest him, you know, after she she identifies him, and mm-hmm. the, he doesn't look all that. I mean, it, <laughs> his his hair is you know more combed in that photo, but I'm like, well, that could have I can see that that sketch looks like him in that photo too. And then they show yeah. the picture of the guy they you know, originally uh, later th- you know, find out or think did it, and yeah, the sketch looks like that guy too. So no, I, yeah, yeah, it, it's when you see the actual perpetrator, the one whose DNA matches. Which, by the way, in the previous episode, I don't know if I was really clear. You know, I don't think that he did have anything to do at all with the with that first rate. I mean, I really do think they just got it wrong. Right. But when you see the picture of the actual guy, the perpetrator, you go. Oh well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I, I can see why. Why um, under that situation you might Confuse mistake Stephen Avery for the other guy. Right, they, they, they look nearly hair, identical, kind of longer and and uh, messy, and a you know blonde, blonde beard. beard. And yeah, um, <laughs> they they do kind of with you know, especially with all that hair. You know that that stands out as a key feature you'd remember. And that's the other thing is that in her interview, um, she she describes um, the guys having brown eyes, and they make this big deal about Stephen Avery has blue eyes, 
so you know it totally doesn't match um you know who she's described and there's this whole conspiracy and yada 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 what they never mentioned is that the guy who they later you know get his dna it did it he also has blue eyes so yep Yep. it's 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 making this whole deal of something that okay if if he the you know the bad the real you know uh guy who had assaulted her had brown eyes then okay then maybe there's something to that whole thing but he also has blue eyes so what is with the whole bringing up the eye color difference when it really was just a honest misremembering of the circumstances and not this grand conspiracy uh to put him up yeah i i'm with you i i I, I see lots of mistakes, which are easy to see in hindsight. I see some bad, poor decisions, um, but I don't see conspiracy. I just, I, I don't, I can't, I don't know, I, I can't buy into it. Uh, I just, I, you know, in fact, that's one of the things I really appreciated Dean Strang saying. There, there are two, two things he talked about. One was he really hopes Stephen Avery is guilty because the alternative is just too horrible to think about right. that. You know these cops would do. That. I agree with that. I I, I tend to feel the same way. I, I kind of hope he is, and I don't think I'm being naive. I just think when you look at all of this evidence, it just requires wait too many people and people talk and someone's going to talk and or someone's going to mess it up. There's just too many people, and government is just not that efficient. Government is just not that smart. I've worked in government long enough now to see. I don't think government could pull this off. <laughs> I just don't see that happening. Um, the other thing he said that I really liked was about certitude in the criminal justice system is that we've got this overinflated sense of what certainty is, that we don't have this humility about certainty um, when it comes to these things. And I, and I think it was I think it was really putting his finger on this concept of, of course, reasonable doubt and beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, did, did you have any thoughts about that? Did that resonate with you at all? Well, what was interesting to me, what kind of kept coming into my head was that is both those terms, reasonable doubt and scientific certainty, which now seem to, to, to go together in the, the court system, you know, so closely together. And the whole the whole concept of beyond a reasonable doubt is, I mean, hundreds of years old. This has been a concept around in the court system for a very long time. And the application of science to determine guilt or innocence uh, is is extremely new. You know, the, the, to the level that it's come now is even newer. I mean, and it's the whole idea that that most of these kinds of cases should have scientific evidence presented or that science is the way to determine guilt is mm, is such a very brand new concept I, i'm not quite sure if that's if that's possible that that uh, our concept of justice as uh, beyond reasonable doubt maybe that that does need to be kept separate from this scientific certainty uh, aspect of things um, or is that the way people want to go? Most, I don't think most criminal cases have, you know, a, a scientific uh, testimony or analysis or uh, aspect to it. That you know, it it does come down a lot of times to what people see, what people remember, or um, you know, what people are recorded uh, in various ways as having as as doing. So. 
how do you how do you marry these two concepts together of, of science and certainty and uh, doubt um, in the in the court system? Well, I I agree. I don't know that we we know how to handle that. And I, but I mean, when I look at people like Ian Ebbett, um, who have you know, spoken on these kinds of issues, that it's really important, of course, to keep the strength of the evidence as insulated as possible from some of the you know the case details that only when you take the strength of the evidence and then begin to interpret it in light of case facts this is the bayesian process of course um i i think that's where you can take a really good piece of evidence you know this evidence is associated with her dna profile you know to a very strong level but then when you start to put in the case information Although the evidence is certain, it's her profile, it's her fingerprint, whatever. It's the case information that begins to inject this concept of reasonable doubt that, well, there are other reasonable explanations for observing this phenomenon. Her fingerprint was there because of this. Her DNA was there because of X or Y or Z. But then we don't have evidence to say which of these scenarios is more or less likely. There's no evidence that suggests more or less likely planting the evidence. It's simply one explanation that defense has proposed, a fairly you know, interesting set of circumstances in Stephen Avery's case. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think that our criminal justice system has really evolved to handle evidence um, where you can take a fingerprint or take a DNA match, but now it doesn't know what to do with that or how to assign reasonable doubt or beyond reasonable doubt in the context of a case. Yeah, and that's that's um, some big steps for for you know, lawyers and judges uh, and just the yes. whole criminal justice and system. Jurors. And jurors. That's a big yes. step for them to learn how to handle. Uh, but not for us. <laughs> and that's the thing. It doesn't... It, we're only there to talk about the strength of the evidence, not necessarily its meaning right. or its likelihood of observing it under these set of circumstances. That's the thing is we're relieved of that responsibility. How jurors handle that, what processes they used, you know, to determine that is uh, beyond me. I mean, I, uh, thankfully, I don't have to make those kinds of decisions. Well, especially it, it's, it, it's somehow been set up that you know, the scientific uh, evidence uh, is is more and more important in an arena run by people with the some of the the, mm. the some of the least qualified people to deal with science. <laughs> um, mm. Good point. So I think that's maybe, that probably is another another thing that at some point uh, science is going to have to uh, just as a necessity become a more important element uh, in the the schooling of uh, of lawyers um, yeah and and if, if lawyers aren't good at science then we may get to a point where well okay then those are the ones that go do tax law um, but if you're going to do criminal law then you got to be good at science too mm. yep so uh, uh, one of the last thoughts I had it was really just Got, you know, I, first, I noticed it right in the beginning, and then I saw the I saw it throughout the rest of the video. Uh, at one point, um, I th I don't think it was the his defense attorneys in trial, but I think it was that some of the defense attorneys that um, that helped in his exoneration 
uh, and in the you know, beginnings of the lawsuit uh, of, of the county. The, they, they said at one point that this is really isn't about money. You know, this is about you know, justice for Stephen, who's been in uh, prison for 18 years, and um, even more importantly, about uh, this not happening again, this not happening to somebody else. Yes. And I, I, I got to just call shenanigans. That, that <laughs> He's standing there in a $1,000 suit uh, talking about how it's not about the money. You know, all, all the the settlement that he eventually gets while he's in prison basically went to his his attorneys throughout this entire process, mm-hmm. who yeah. are there in thousand dollar suits every day, while his family is walking into court in overalls and Walmart clothes. It is it is very clearly about money, uh, yeah. and yeah, to to suggest otherwise is is just ridiculous. Um, Notice, notice how those attorneys are not defending him now pro bono no. in in this case. Yeah, um, yeah. That you know he's he's now having to request the Innocence Project people to to take his case on for free because they have no money left. You know, the, the, yeah, they and, couldn't even get an attorney for Brendan because uh, all the money went into Stephen's defense for the two you know high priced lawyers that defend him the whole time. Yeah, um, you know. I don't know if you followed up on that at all. I mean, you know, I've worked with the Innocence Project uh, here and there, and it didn't surprise me that they weren't able to to take up any cause with this case of his. Um, You know, some people pointed towards that and go, well, look, even the Innocence Project isn't backing up. They must think he's guilty. That's not necessarily how they work. I mean, this is just for listeners that don't know. Um, It's not, it was not surprising to me at all. The Innocence Project only gets involved in, cases where they know that they can produce new evidence right you know there's a new test or there's a new something i don't know that there would be any new evidence that could be found in the Stephen avery case new physical evidence it's why they got involved in this first case because there was you know essentially an untested there was dna tests that came along later and they could do dna tests on evidence that was collected from the first you know sexual assault but there's nothing like that in this case so to them, there's nothing that they can really offer. Now, whether or not they take up you know, a cause in a certain case, they just, just don't, though, because they understand from a legal standpoint, there's other cases they can be investing their time and resources in, but there isn't any new evidence that they're aware of that they could get involved in. Right. And, you know, especially that, you know, they generally do work, you know, pro bono, uh, and, and and they look for you know, opportunities for success. Um, yeah. And, and I think they, you know, they also, you know, have charitable funds that right. they can work off of and things like that. You know, But the, the, you know, the attorneys that were involved in uh, his lawsuit against the county uh, and his attorneys throughout the case, they all made a lot of money uh, on this case. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that was another thing I, I, it's, you know, popped into my head right at the beginning and then I, I noticed that that uh, disparity uh, in between, you know, the people uh, and his family, and then you know the people that were you know hired by him, and it really kind of colors everything else that happens uh, and ha- has happened since then. Well, I, I okay, so this is actually going to dovetail into my final thought about this. Um, I 
I think I, I really enjoyed watching this documentary. I, I maybe didn't have the same feeling that you had. I'm maybe I'm a little used to that from these documentaries. I enjoyed it as a drama, and the right away the the filmmakers defended it by saying we weren't trying to show his guilt or in, innocence. Okay, well, well I'm trying to slant it. Yeah. Shenanigans. Um, <laughs> Right, right. Um, I'm, I can live with that statement. I, I, I do agree that if their mission was to set out to show um, the problems of the criminal justice system and how justice is achieved, then I think mission accomplished. Right. That they did a brilliant job of showing problems in the criminal justice system and inequity, especially when you don't have money. When you look at the two cases between Brendan Dassey and, and Stephen Avery – you, I mean, you really do. You feel for the Brendan Dassey case, although again, it, he may have been very involved in this, and I think there's some physical evidence that suggests that he was, um, and some things, you know, from his interview statement. But I also think that there's some things that went horribly wrong with that as well. It's just as a spectator of the criminal justice system, and that, as you pointed out, didn't have the money that Stephen Avery had, and it's unfortunate that. None of that money went, you know, maybe towards his direction from his uncle. Um, anyway, uh, what I like, what I I enjoyed about it was seeing that dichotomy in the system, and that when you don't have money and you don't have education, the criminal justice system is not your friend. No. Um, and especially, especially if you are guilty, <laughs> um, if you have committed. A crime, maybe not even the crime you're being charged of. This system is a, a number of hurdles, and it is not at all designed to be your friend, to be neutral, or to be impartial. And you're, if you don't know what your rights are and you don't have access to money, um, you're kind of screwed. And I, 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 I liked it in seeing it in this. I mean, it, it, it's disturbing, but I, I think it's an issue that needs to be brought up. But um, I also recently, and I'll bring this up for listeners, I, um, there was another case that I went back and watched after watching this one. I'd watched it years ago, back when I was teaching again, because it had great elements just like this. It's called The Staircase. It's an eight-part uh, series that's done by a French filmmaker, and it's about the North Carolina versus uh, Peterson case. And it's another great case with weird twists, um, but the guy that's being accused has a lot of money. And when you see the difference between oh. the people with money and he spends, I mean, upwards of three quarters of a million to a million dollars on his defense, and, and there's lots of, again, harking back to OJ, um, it, it's so crazy that how, how much money you need to essentially mount a proper defense with proper experts, you know, to rebut evidence and such. If you don't have that money, Man, you are really, you're really screwed. Um, and again, I'm being a bit facetious, but true, especially if you are guilty. Right. I mean, especially right. so. And maybe people don't have sympathy because, well, you're guilty, so what? Yeah, but the presumption, the supposed presumption, is innocent until proven guilty. And the the staircase is just another great one that uh, I recommend uh, people go out uh, check that Netflix has it on disc. You can't you know stream it, but you can right. check it out on disc. And it's uh, it's another really interesting series with great lawyers who I think do a really really good job of mounting a brilliant defense. And you just see how 
how these things come out. Um, it may be not as ambiguous as Making a Murderer, but still well worth a watch. And uh, uh, Eric, if you end up watching that, we could do another episode <laughs> on that. Because it's got some interesting implications because of what happened later in North Carolina uh, State Crime Lab. Um, there are some 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 uh, questions that come up later, and uh, it's another fascinating case, too. Well, let, but let me ask anyway. you this, Glenn. Because uh, this has started to, uh, towards the end, this this question started to kind of creep in for me. How how do you feel about uh, you know documentaries uh, or news stories um, that are are about you know real crimes and real death and you know real mm-hmm. real defendants and real people in prison as entertainment? Yep, it's. They are entertaining as hell for people who weren't involved in those cases and uh, did not have family members that were murdered. I, I imagine that uh, it's, it is entertaining to see. It's why new detectives and why forensic files and all these, it's, it's why they were so popular because you get this story um, about, you know, especially the physical evidence. But what I like about the documentaries is that you start to get into the mind of the attorneys who are representing these people and their strategies, and you begin to see how much more beyond the evidence it is. And The Staircase does a great job of this because they follow the defense attorneys as well quite a bit, but also the prosecutors. And you start seeing their theories, how they're putting the evidence together, how they pick and choose what evidence they're going to present and how they're going to present it. And you begin to see, as we were just talking about a little while ago, Eric, the evidence might say one thing, but it's how that evidence is introduced and how it's folded into the information of the case and how the attorneys do that. Sometimes it's done masterfully and very skillfully, and I can appreciate that. And other times you just look at it and go, this is this is crazy. Um, it Because it, it takes the case in a wild spin one direction or the other, and, and you just think, wow, this these are decisions, I, I, again, I'm thankful I don't have to make. It just shows that what we consider American jurisprudence, the courtroom setting, has seems to do so little with the evidence itself. You know, and I know everyone says it's a bit cliche, but it is so much of a show. It's so much of presentation. It's so much, well, we got to come up with a theory that can also explain this. It just seems to do so little with the real evidence and more about telling a story and and making a story that will, if you will, stick for one side or the other. Yeah, no, I I, I started thinking you know how much I enjoy like you know movies or TV shows that are crime dramas essentially. I don't know of, of how is it different when it's a true crime drama? Um, does that make it more entertaining, or should it be entertainment at all? Um, Right. What people like about uh, this form of entertainment, and uh, you know what it really says that it's entertaining to us. Yeah, I mean, that, I I think the things that entertain me and my colleagues, and probably you, are rather different than maybe what entertains or the public has found fascinating. You know, right. the public love this conspiracy, and the public is really gravity. I actually that stuff didn't. You know, I I just kept saying no. That's actually that stuff happens all the time. It seems no that that's reasonable. I can. Under- I was much more fascinated about the evidence and how the evidence is portrayed by one side or the other. Effectively, the the staging of 
the courtroom. The courtroom stuff is what I... I actually didn't care so much about all... I just wanted the episodes of where they're presenting in court. I used to just video record court TV for eight hours a day while I was at work and come home and watch just watch <laughs> testimony. I'm, I was fascinated by the courtroom setting, and especially if I had seen the evidence or knew something about the evidence, like the, well, the staircase example, I had seen the evidence in that case because my one of my mentors had done bloodstain pattern evidence in that case. So I had a chance to actually see it. So when you see it presented in the video or when you see it presented on court TV, you go, oh, okay, well, that was left out, that was left out, that was left out. Right. You, you, again, realize either a filmmaker or the prosecutor or the defense attorney is telling their version of the evidence. And that's really hard for me, as well as entertaining to me, to see how they make those kinds of strategies. I hate thinking of the courtroom as a chess game, but it kind of is. And, yeah. and it's it's how they slant the evidence to fit a certain thing or, as you know, the defense is trying to do, trying to fit a reasonable doubt argument. And, and you know, I saw, saw that even with the, the Jody Arias case uh, recently oh, sure. when, uh, you know, in Arizona, knowing the people involved and, and hearing uh, from yeah. them ahead of time of what, you know, what what they found and what their uh, conclusions were. And then listening to that testimony and go, wait a minute, we, <laughs> you, you just, you know, okay, yeah, you showed all the evidence, right? You talked a little bit about the processing the scene and then it was, there's, there's an ID kind of, briefly mentioned in passing but since you know she was now admitting to to being there uh fingerprint id didn't really mean much uh, in the case uh, anymore um anymore it did at first it did at first when they were investigating <laughs> okay. and said aha we got you you're lying your story you know doesn't check out because now we have your fingerprint in his blood but you know now in court it's not doesn't matter because she's now uh, you know switched her story to say that it was self-defense and so now it's it's just kind of glossed over because uh the tactics have changed so Mm -hmm. yeah all right glenn i think we've uh we've uh, exhausted this topic um but uh i'd like have we i i I is there still I could more? Probably talk, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I tell you what we sh- what we should do. We should open up the listeners. I suspect listeners of many of our topics. Yeah. This is one that they might uh, people might have some questions or want us to discuss or maybe even call in and discuss themselves. Oh yeah, I'd love to hear from listeners, especially our Wisconsin listeners. That would be oh yeah, how good yeah. would that be? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. <laughs> So uh, while we we can wrap this one up and we'll go to some more mundane research and studies maybe next week and uh, we'll go to our other usual kind of topics. If there are listeners that want to get involved a little bit or have some theories or have some thoughts or want to share some things, we'd ask you to uh, write us, uh, email us at you know Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at Eric at RayForensics.com. And uh, or give us a call or a shout out, and we can yeah. figure out how to get you on the on the phone. And let's 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 discuss. Let's discuss this case. Absolutely. Um, and oh, I, I just realized we forgot we did it the first episode, but we forgot to do it at the beginning of this episode. Uh, but uh, for anyone who's now finished, there were spoilers um, in in this episode. So sorry oh, about yeah, that. Tough, tough. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, you know, definitely uh, write in, uh, and and we'd love to have more guests, more call in call in people on the show. Uh, but uh, listen every week, and uh, that's on SoundCloud, iTunes, or on Stitcher. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com. Thank you.